Welcome to Behind the Bob, Diary of a Comms Director with me, Carrie Ann Wade. This podcast is all about developing communications leaders of the future and supporting you to grow and thrive in your comms career. You'll hear from me about my experiences and insights, and there might even be a special guest or two popping up. So I hope you enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Behind the Bob, Diary of a Comms Director. As you'll all know by now, I'm Carrie-Anne, and you'll be really pleased to hear this is one of those episodes where I am joined by a fabulous guest. So I have another fantastic communicator with me to have a conversation this afternoon, and that's the lovely Kirk. Welcome, Kirk. We've known each other for a while through the NHS Communications network so thank you so much for being here would you like to introduce yourself and just say hello to the listeners oh yeah definitely thank you so much for having me on hello everyone my name is Kurt Millis Ward and I'm a director of communications and engagement and I'm based on the not so sunny Isle of Wight I'm sheltering from the rain as we speak (laughs) I know I blinked and missed summer I feel like I'm not sure what's happening with the weather if I'm honest I don't know if it is as glamorous as it sounds when you say you work on the Isle of Wight, Kirk. There's a certain free sun of glamour to it, I guess, <laughs> but that come, it comes with its challenges. You know, uh, we, we refer to uh, you guys as living on the North Island. So um, there's, a, <laughs> there's maybe a slightly parochial kind of we do it the island way vibe to things. And, and that's nice. There's a different, a different kind of place, but it does present, you know, uh, challenges, especially professionally, you know, it's a small, very close knit community. The average age is higher than the rest of England, a really interesting mix of people. And yeah, it's a lovely place to live and work for sure. Oh, I will try not to feel too jealous of you being absolutely coastal, probably whichever direction you thank you so much for being here. I'm really excited about having this conversation, actually because I feel like I'm going to get to find out a bit more about you, probably things that that I don't yet know about you. And I know our listeners will be really excited to hear some of your thoughts, insights and experience, particularly around public sector communications and diversity in the profession. So shall we get started? I would really love it, as I'm sure our listeners would, if you could tell us a little bit more about your career as a, a communications professional to date. Yeah, well, I love the opportunity to talk a little bit about myself. So, so thanks. It's been it's been a bit of a circuitous journey. I think I originally trained as a physiotherapist, and the NHS was going through one of its semi-regular top-down reorganisations. Just as I qualified, of the ninety-six people in my year, I think only twelve made it onto uh, junior rotations. So. Uh, uh, I'm not somebody that can, that copes well with waiting. Uh, so I decided to retrain after a year teaching, I retrained as a journalist, moved down to Brighton and I spent having launched and closed my own magazine after my training, I went into newspaper journalism and spent, spent the best part of a decade working for local, regional, national newspapers get some daily, some weekly, um, and I absolutely loved reporting. It was, was different and something that, and yeah, I'll, I'll never really, although it was hard and, you know, the intense pressure of deadlines, 
I actually really enjoyed that, the, the kind of, and it will probably come onto it a bit later, but I know, I now know that I am sort of built to work in that way. Projects with long leading the stone tend to interest me so much. I need the bit of, I need the adrenaline of it in line. So I, I fitted in really well and, and loved it. And one thing it had in common with my training as a physio was that a big part of the job was just being comfortable with walking into a room and just dealing with the person in front of you and forming rapport quickly and, and, you know, being able to engage them and find language that reaches them. And those two experiences, I think laid a, laid a foundation quite by accident for what I would come on to in, in my communications career. And I, the reason I say it's circuitous is because I, I left journalism for, I did some private sector PR and lobbying work. I wound up on a short term contract at a now defunct organization called Monitor, which merged with the NHS Trust Development Authority to become NHS Improvement, which has now merged into, and did, did a bunch of really interesting work there. I was head of news for a while. But I, I still felt like I was, I'd almost got there, but not quite. And it was only really when I then moved to a NHS provider back in Brighton, um, that I really felt like I'd completed that circle. I'm so glad that I did. I absolutely love working in the NHS and in public sector communications in general. I think it's, it's a profession where. One thing that I talk about with people in my team and with um, colleagues is how difficult sometimes it can be to understand how the work you're doing, what's the, how does this meeting that I'm in affect people's lives in a meaningful way? And it can be quite difficult sometimes. Um, but I find working in the NHS that that line is much shorter, it's much easier to connect what you're doing on a day-to-day basis with some net positive or benefit to the, to the community. And um, one of the reasons that I wanted to come to the Isle of Wight, I talked about the challenges, but there's something uniquely meaningful about when in our hospital or our community services or an ambulance goes to somebody's house, the, the odds are that a colleague, a friend or a neighbor or somebody. And, and so that, that kind of direct link to the community that you're in is, is really palpable here. And, uh, and I just love that. I love it. It sounds a lot like having meaning and being able to deliver something meaningful, particularly rooted in your own community feels like it's really important for you and something that you talk about with with your comms colleagues which I think is really brilliant before I ask you my next question I'm intrigued to know about your magazine you launched you launched and closed a magazine are we allowed to ask what it's what it was about it was called it was called so it goes and uh it was uh ill an ill thoughts brewing kind of politics and culture magazine and we had we do articles on blood and fashion week the right wing the emergence of right wing nationalists in sweden route in africa it was like 
it was basically what it's like inside my head. So I love it, that. Yeah, had no kind of adherence to it. It was very scattergun. And it was just as kind just as kind of the internet was becoming a thing. And we had one of the first page turners. Um, so you could read it online and a page turner would go shh. And we just thought it was the coolest thing. That honestly you know, so impressive. Thing. That still impresses yeah. me. Um, <laughs> But 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 sadly, nobody else thought it was cool. Oh. So I had to take a job working on a local newspaper. <laughs> thank, thank you for indulging me. I was very intrigued to know what your magazine was. And so it goes. They, there we are. You've talked uh, a bit already about almost going back to your roots in your NHS comms role because you obviously started out as a, as a physiotherapist and you've gone right back round full circle um, back into the NHS. So is it that sense of meaning and that seeing the impact you can have for local communities and building those relationships that's attracted you to work in public sector comms or, or is it something else? Yeah, I'm really, really interested in the behavioural science aspect of communications. So I'm naturally curious about knowing the audience and understanding what they might need to encourage them to think, feel, or do something different. So I guess what it boils down to is that I, I like being able to apply myself to think, to work that is intended to have a net benefit for a sort of group of people in law community. I, I think in general, I'm just fascinated, fascinated by people in all their weird and wonderful things. Comms to me is all about understanding people and how to how to reach them and, and I, I like internal communications uh, we do the full mix obviously but I really like trying to understand what people need to get the most out of work whether that's the support that they might need to ensure that they're thriving at work at work or whether it's the really practical nuts and bolts stuff tools that they need to to actually do their job and i sort of i, I just think that that's i think that's fantastic being yeah. in a position to try and help figure that out um and then make someone's life easier even if it's a tiny bit day by day so i think the answer to that that's a rambling way of saying i think it's really valuable to me to be surrounded by weird and wonderful people. And it gives me, like, like you said, it gives me a sense of purpose and a connect and a connection to what the end result is of, of the work that we do. I love, thank you for sharing. So I'm, I'm going to move us on a little bit now and ask you, Kirk, whether there's been anything that you consider has been a barrier perhaps to your career in communications to date. I'll take a moment to check my privilege. I'm a white middle class cisgendered male that that hasn't been kind of the structural systematic kind of barriers to my progression. Though I know many colleagues have experienced and people across the NHS and public and private sectors experience. So no, I don't think there's been a, a structural barrier. But in, but I'll share a personal experience, if I may. In, in 2022, I experienced a significant period of illness and I was off work for 
I think four months in total and I, I'd burnt out basically. I'd, uh, I was working extremely long hours in a new job, trying to prove myself. And when the pandemic started, I, I had nowhere to go. I was already on the verge of burnout and, um, you know, I managed to maintain it for as, for as long as I did, but eventually the body, the body keeps score, right. And I decided I, I it had enough. And it was really in the recovery from that, that I'm kind of what, putting the pieces back together and um, being supported back into work that I was diagnosed with, with ADHD and a lot of stuff started to make sense for me from the slightly wacky content in my magazine that didn't take off that I was excited on and then just stopped doing to my almost obsessive need to collect work and, um, to, you know, relentlessly pursue it. Um, and it made a huge amount of sense. It tracked with my, throughout my career, um, and, and being a neurodiversity executive director and communicator is a really interesting conundrum. For me, it's got good and bad points. So I am creative, I'm energetic, I'm strategic. I can make connections between things that, um, that my uh, colleagues may not see that has its challenges too. But I struggle with so much stuff that is just like the basics of being a senior communicator. Long meetings are really difficult and, and finding a way to adapt to the sort of work that we have to do whilst allowing the good parts of ADHD and the things that I bring that add value. Um, is a really difficult balance to find and literally prior to my diagnosis, I had no idea why I was finding this stuff difficult. I was getting through the week uh, through sheer force of will. And obviously that was not sustainable. I think that there are, there are structures in place that neurodiverse people from entering all sorts of professions. But I think it's particularly, there's a particular risk for columns as a profession, as we, we need ideas and experience from such a wide range of people in order that we can communicate effectively. It hadn't even occurred to me, for instance, that the type of information we are sharing with our workforce of three and a bit thousand people might not be suitable for people who are neurodiverse. And it only occurred to me because I, because I am neurodiverse that a 500 word article announcing something in technical language is never gonna reach that part of our workforce. Now it might sound like that's obvious, that's comms basics, but you can take it even further. The colors that you use in your newsletters or in your social media posts the audio that you use to accompany clips and things, the way you structure your intranet accessibility is really, really important. We know that as comms people, but if we don't have experience of the people who are accessing the content or which, or the, who we are trying to reach, 
then I think we've got, we've got an issue. And my experience, my personal experience, I can't fault my employer. They've been hugely understanding my, my boss, my colleagues, they've been understanding and supportive and I've been supported back into my role and adjustments have been made for me, but, uh, and I want to, and, and I've started to try in a small way to give back to the organization. So I'm the exec lead for our neurodiversity stuff network and for our disabilities and long-term condition network too. And I now realize that my experience, even just in our organization is not a common law. And, um, that's true. That I believe is true across the NHS, across the public sector, and also within communications as a subset. Had I not been supported, then I would, I would have actually left. And I may not be working in the NHS now, and I still feel like I've got quite lots to give. So I, I, I'd say that my experience around neuro, neurodiversity and understanding and awareness in the workplace. There's so many things I want to say in response to what you've shared. But firstly, I just want to say a huge thank you for sharing your personal experience and I also want to say that I'm glad that you receiving your diagnosis of ADHD, albeit in adulthood and probably, you know, quite a long time from when perhaps it would have been helpful for you to have that diagnosis has has changed things for you in terms of your own insight and understanding kind of why maybe you need things to be a certain way that might be be different from what other people need. And it seems like adult diagnosis of ADHD is something which is becoming more common, which on the one hand I feel is is really positive because there's people being able to understand kind of what it is they need to be able to function. But on the other hand, I guess makes me feel quite sad because that means people have gone through quite a lot of their life before they've been able to maybe get some of that support that they need. So I think it's really good that you are sharing this. Thank you so much for sharing. And interesting that you say it makes sense now why certain things are challenges and you talk about the long meetings and I have to say uh, public sector and NHS specifically feels like the home of long meetings more generally and, and yeah it's just been interesting to hear from you kind of what hasn't helped you but also what has so I'm, I'm really pleased that your organisation has been so supportive and enabled you to, to have the adjustments that you've needed. You've talked a little bit about your role as a, an ambassador and for your staff networks around neurodiversity and disability and long-term conditions. You've talked about some of the things that have been challenges for you and the fact that your employer has made some of those adjustments. But you've also touched on, you know, the challenges of recruiting and retaining communications professionals if we don't take into account people with neurodiverse needs. So I just wondered if you thought there was anything that we could do to help reduce those types of barriers for others, particularly in the communication space? I've wrestled with this one um, on, a, on a kind of micro scale. So in, in the past, I've worked in teams where I was the only male. And that's, a, that's an interesting conundrum, isn't it? Like, should I be specifically trying to hire a person of this type? It's up to us as communicators to be open to hiring and then developing people from all backgrounds. In my experience, 
I know that some managers have found me quite difficult to manage because I move forward at a rapid pace and I'm full of ideas and I'm highly creative. And so they have potentially sort of stepped back from give it, giving me the kind of challenges or, you know, or support I might need when actually all I really needed was for them to put the guide rails in place or define the pitch on which I could play and then, and, and then let, let me go and see, see what comes from it. And in my experience, having managed various teams, I think that we make unconscious choices about who we hire and who we develop. And it's based on who, who we are as people and, and how, and how we think those individuals will fit with our style. And we have to challenge ourselves not to hire and create teams of mini means. It would be a nightmare for me if I did that. <laughs> We'd never get anything done. We'd have a hundred brilliant ideas every meeting and nobody would write anything down. It'd be a nightmare. So we have to challenge ourselves as communicators. I think that's true of leaders in the public sector anyway. And, and as senior leaders in the public in the sector, we have to give our people the tools to thrive at work. Like there's no two ways about it. If we don't do the basics for our people, that they will suffer, that the quality of their work will suffer. And then the thing that we're trying to do as an organization won't get done. So it, it's like core, core part of our purpose is supporting people. And that may prevent me from burning out. It might support them back into work, or it might help a person find the reasonable adjustment that they need to get the most from their experience at work. Hot desking comes up at the neurodiversity network all the time. It's really difficult for someone with ADHD or autism not to know where they're going to sit. It's a simple thing. So having a conversation with a line manager about Yes, hot desking is the organization's policy, but let's work away. So, you know, this week you're going to sit in that desk there and, and next week we'll sort out and, and, and then they can get a bit of consistency and that enables them to feel, uh, centered and safe and they can get on with their work and be productive. Whereas if you don't have that conversation, they're going to stress about getting into work and they may not come into work as they feel overwhelmed and simple things like that. What it boils down to, I think is taking personal responsibility for the decisions you make in hiring and developing people and being curious enough about the people that you hire to understand what they need to develop. I, I think that's a really good reminder to us all, isn't it? That as leaders, I think we can often be in a space where we operate and talk a lot about what we need or what the organisation needs in terms of delivery and priorities and what we should all be working on. But perhaps we don't always spend enough time asking what the individuals in our team need to actually help us get to that. And that is actually such a basic conversation to have with somebody really, isn't it? Like, how are you? What do you need to be effective? If you think about the investment you're making in somebody over the course of a a, a career, it might be different in different sectors, but let's take an NHS 
staff member, if they spend their career in the NHS, and the NHS is making northward of a, a million pounds of investment in that individual over the course of their career. And, you know, some, some people will go an entire career without a manager being curious enough to, uh, to try to understand what they need to develop. And, and that's, that's a tragedy. It, they don't have to be neurodiverse or, or, or has come up against systemic barriers or blockers in their career. They could just have not had that conversation and they will never have the experience at work that they might have. So on a, on a very basic level, we as leaders need to be more curious about people in our teams and, and and challenge ourselves when we're making decisions about hiring new people. And at the risk of stereotyping communicators, my experience has been that people who choose to work in communications as a profession are usually quite naturally curious people. So I would hope, I would that hope that true. for us in our profession, that would be something that if we're not doing it already, we can very easily start to do with our teams. Are you a communications professional who would like to feel more confident in your career choices? Perhaps you'd like to be more intentional in the way you approach your work life. Our Cats Pajamas Thrive programme is a 12-week structured online programme that supports communications professionals to grow and thrive. It's a safe space for discussion, action and accountability, all with the aim of helping you to thrive as a communicator and as a leader. The next Thrive programme starts on the 1st of September and if you'd like to find out more, or reserve your place on the programme, visit the website, catch up with us on the socials, or drop us a line. We've mentioned your magazine, we've mentioned quite a bit, we mentioned your physiotherapy training, but I would be really interested to hear from you, Kirk, about what you consider to be some of your highlights of your public sector comms career to inspire some of our listeners. But, but, uh, but there are a few things that stand out and nothing quite matches the experience of celebrating um, the recent good rating from the Care Quality Commission that we had on the Isle of Wight. Um, the fact that people had worked their socks off for four years to get to that point um, and that they'd done all of that work under a cloud of having an inadequate rating and being in into commas double special measures for quality and for finance. Um, it 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 meant so much to the to our colleagues and to be able to sort of facilitate that celebration was a was a really proud. We had, there's a castle on the Isle of Wight, which is quite historic, called Carisbrook, and that was lit up green um, overnight. Um, and, and it created a real buzz um, on, on the island, and everybody, even my in-laws knew about it, um, which is kind of the mark of PR cut through on the Isle of Wight. Um, so... So that was, that was really meaningful. I'm not sure if it's a highlight, but it's definitely something that I won't forget. And that was in COVID, the government 
who's got a set up a COVID-19 app and, and they wanted to trial it somewhere. And it made sense to do it on the Isle of Wight because by and large people couldn't get off the Isle of Wight at the time. There were, I think, a lot of raised eyebrows about our ability to um, engage with people in in a in a way that would make the pilot meaningful. So will we get enough people to download the app so that the data will help the national effort? And putting aside all the controversy about the app and its development and whether it worked or not, we we were set a really difficult task of getting getting more than half of the population of the Isle of Wight, who had, which, as I mentioned in the intro, is older uh, on average than the um, rest of England, to download an app in that context. With, you know, that I remember at the start of the process thinking, oh, God, I don't think, I don't think we're going to do it. And we're certainly not going to be able to do it by tweeting. Uh, and so, and so what? What followed from that actually was we, sh- we stripped it right back and partnership, people talk about partnership working and it's something people say, but I don't think really happens that much. We worked incredibly closely with our colleagues at the council and we did, we did hyper-local engagement through the council's teams, street by street, village by village across the island and that wouldn't have been possible for the department of health and social care or the nhs on the island to do so we've had to do it together um and and we we got the engagement that we needed for the pilot to be meaningful and so in some small way i felt like public sector comms on the Isle of white did its bit for the nation's response to the to the pandemic obviously putting all the politics of it aside and actually having, having an international news event on the launch of the app outside St. Mary's hospital on the Isle of Wight. I think we had something like 32 definitely in that region during this camera cruise. We did that. We had to do a first press, but we'd never done a press on, on the Isle of Wight and we had people all prepared and lined up and we were sort of and um, sending them over to ABC from America or um, to the BBC or ITV. And, and it was like, it was a genuine event for the Isle of Wight. And, I, I, and I, it, went per, it went perfectly. And actually it was, a, we had a new team member join and it was her first day at the trust. And she, I remember sort of looking at her at one point and she was like, <laughs> Quite wide-eyed, and I, I had to say it's not. It really isn't like being said. I, I, I promise it's not. Whether that's a good thing or a bad yeah. thing, it's not like this yeah. every day. <laughs> so there, there, there are there are a few things that stand out, but um, we'll find a one. No, no one a bit here. But um, one thing that I will always remember is when somebody I have have fired and enjoyed working with comes to me and says, I've got a new job and the new job is really good. And you just think, ah, like you're, you're so conflicted because you're like, oh no, the best, 
the best one that always leaves me. But but at the same time, you're so proud that they've they've come in, they've bossed what you've given them over the last few years, and now that and they off. And I just love, I absolutely love that. And there, there've been a few um, people that that I've worked with over the years that I'm super proud of how their careers have, have gone on and developed. And that's such an important part of being a good leader, isn't it? That when the opportunity for progression and promotion and development is no longer there for you to give that really brilliant person, actually you just feel really happy and proud that they are able to get that somewhere else and you support them to do that. Because it would be so easy, wouldn't it, to try and and convince people to stay because they're your good people. But if you can't give them what they need for that next step then it's really important that you support them to progress so I and I absolutely get that feeling of conflict where you're like oh no I love working with that person they're so good but you also <laughs> know that they're ready for that next thing so so I love that one I I also love that people's in-laws are the barometer of whether the comms is worked on the island for your CQC good rating and I also love that it, but it felt like from how you described it that that it actually wasn't just about the colleagues in your NHS organisation celebrating and being proud of that good, but it was actually for the island and that it sounded like the community kind of got on board with that celebration, which was lovely. And again, your COVID example, just brilliant, absolutely at the forefront of leading the way around how we were going to manage COVID and having all of that international press there on, on your island sounds like it was probably a really amazing experience. And and COVID's always an interesting conversation to have, I find, with communicators, particularly those who've worked in the NHS and, and local authority, because I think many communicators I talked to say it was like one of the most stressful, difficult, ongoing, sustained crises that I've ever had to deal with. But actually, it's often when communicators come into their own. And, and it, it almost felt like people like, yeah, this is what we're here for, actually. This is where we can really shine in terms of where comms can add value. So again, another interesting one, because a bit of conflict there because it was such a difficult period of time, but I think an opportunity for communicators to really demonstrate value. So some brilliant highlights, and I'm sure there have been many more, but thank you so much for sharing. And for listeners, with that in mind, those amazing highlights that you've that you've shared, I wondered what you would say to a communicator who was considering uh, a career in the public sector what, why would you tell them that that would be a good step for them as a comms professional uh, yeah definitely the lavish parties the endless leaves the glamour the, the <laughs> um, no no from so for me it it's it really is about purpose one thing that we saw in our little trust during COVID was this incredible shared sense of purpose. And although it was awful, that was so meaningful. And if you can find a unifying purpose like that in your team or find purpose just in your, in your career, that is, that is worth more than any, any PR party or award ceremony or expense account. It's the stuff that keeps you getting up out of bed in the morning. So for me, it's about purpose and being able, and as I said earlier, being able to draw a line from your daily work to making people's life 
lives better. And that, that for me is why I'm still in the, the public sector. I love that. Thank you. It wasn't for the glamorous parties and the black tie event. And I hear it a lot from communicators in the public sector around that sense of purpose. We've talked in this conversation and in other episodes, I've talked about this on the podcast, but obviously we've talked a bit about diversity. And I think we can often, when we talk about diversity within the comms profession, I think we can be thinking about gender, thinking about age, thinking about cultural background. But it's been really interesting to hear you talk about neurodiversity because I'll be really honest, I don't think I've thought enough about that as a comms leader and in my profession. So I just wondered from your point of view, Kirk, what do you think we can do to encourage more diversity, whatever that might look or feel like within our profession as communicators? One thing I I really like about um, about you, Carrie-Anne, is that your values are writ large. Um, the way the way you communicate um, professionally to do with your work with in the NHS, uh, but also your work outside the NHS. And, and it's and, and I think it's the same for me. I may not be as good at communicating it, but you are. Um, I like I, I like to sort of force myself to live those values and. I, at work, I try to keep myself accountable. And there are some questions that I ask myself, like, am, am I being an ally for this, for this group? So it, it, it's easy enough for me to retweet a pride post from my trust. That does not mean that is not allyship. That, that is retweeting a post and getting them a bit, a, a, a bit greater reach, it, you know, so cannot. Am I satisfied that I'm being an ally? And if the answer is no, then I have to figure out what more I can do. And am I, I ask myself, what am I spending my time on? Is, is it things that are helping my team or my organization or the community that we serve and setting boundaries, uh, to enable me to spend time that will have an impact on the things that link to my values. So, you know, we talk about the long meetings that we're in, um, that's difficult. We don't always have control of our diaries, but we do have some control. And so I have to ask myself, where am I spending my time? Is it helping in the way that my values suggest that I should be helping? I I ask myself all the time, like, is is the team that I'm in representative of a range of views? Do we do we understand the audience that we're communicating to? And if not, how can we? Um, it might be that we need to go and speak to the neurodiversity network to understand whether the video content for training module is helpful or not, or whether it needs to come in a new format, or you know, are Are we reaching the community on the Isle of Wight, people with learning disabilities? Is it enough just to make an easy read version of a corporate document? We can ourselves, oh, that means we're being inclusive, but the rest of our content is not developed in a way that we'll be engaging for that part of our community. So I'm not saying that the answers I give to these questions are always good ones but the personal responsibility comes in asking the question and then being willing to do 
something about whatever the answer is. You know, I ask myself all the time, am I, are we developing our people? And is it in the way that we need and they need? Because it's, it's easy to, if somebody shows curiosity and energy, it's easy just to keep throwing work at them. Organizations do that all the time. It's one of the reasons I found myself in trouble in, in 2022. Um, but that isn't developing people, just giving people more work. But you need to have had the curiosity to have the conversation with that person to understand what they like, what they don't, what they do that, what they're not. When they see their career in 12 months time, two years, three years, and try to delegate in a way that's not just volume-based workflow, which is difficult, I know, and I don't get that right even half the time, but I think it, at least I'm asking the question and committing to try and do it better. Do people have the support they need? Do I have the support that I need? So, if, you know, for me, it does boil. There's not a simple answer to how we foster greater diversity or allow diverse voices to be heard more widely, but we have to challenge ourselves. And it's a, it's a continuous pro process, I think, rather than let's make decisions differently on hiring on it's through, it's throughout the process. Um, and it's not easy. I, I, I wish it, I wish it, well, I'm like, I've got ideas, did it? These, these sort of long-term problems requiring nuanced solutions, uh, uh, not, not in my wheelhouse. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. I hope that, I hope that no, wasn't too rambling. No, it wasn't at all. But I think that insight as a, as a, not even just as a leader, as a communicator, as a professional, whatever profession you're in, that ability to have that personal insight about questioning yourself and asking what can you do differently to achieve a different outcome for somebody, I think is, is really crucial. And I think it's, I don't know, it's heartened me to hear you talk like that because I don't think every leader does question themselves as much or as often as they probably should about the impact they're having, the support their team needs, you know, what what you really need to do to help develop people. So the fact that you do that on a regular basis, Kirk, has really inspired me and made me think I probably need to do that more myself as a leader. So thank you for that reminder about our own personal responsibility to to keep questioning ourselves and, and challenging our own thinking, as well as the, the thought and action of others. I think that was really helpful. I'm going to try to wrap it up, but I don't want to because I could have this conversation all day, which won't help you because long conversations and long meetings are not good for you. So I will try to wrap this up, Kirk. But I wondered, because we've talked in, in this episode about kind of supporting diversity and particularly about encouraging people to consider um, a career in public sector communications, is there a practical step people listening to this podcast could take today um, to support one or, or both of those kind of challenges? I, I think knowledge and, and practical knowledge of what, what it's like for those, for those people has to be the starting point. And, it, and for someone like me, yes, I had lived experience of what it's like to be neurodiverse, but I don't have lived experience of what it's like to be from the LGBTQ community or, um, uh, or 
um, any of the other diversity networks that we have in our organization. So my, my answer to that is if there is an equality network in your organization, join it as an ally. If there isn't, if there aren't any, set one up and find out what people from these communities think and feel about their experiences at work. The same is true of your community. If it's not a work thing, the only way you can understand, it's the same for communicating. The only way you can communicate effectively is to understand the audience you're trying to engage. And it's the same for me, at least, when it comes to diverse. We need to understand what people experience and think and feel before we do anything else. So if you're just kind of starting to think about that, that's where, that's where I would start because bringing people together essentially is the best way of making change. Um, and yeah, if you, if you don't know how to get stuck in, find out if there's a staff network, if there is great, join it as an ally. If there isn't one, then set one up. Brilliant. Thank you so much for sharing, Kirk. I am going to draw our conversation to a reluctant close on my part. I think the themes I'm taking away from our conversation are around personal responsibility, connection and curiosity. So a huge thank you from me for allowing me to be curious about your experiences and understand more about your comms career today. I really appreciate you sharing, particularly the more personal aspects of your journey. So thank you so much for sharing, Kirk. It's been a pleasure to have this conversation. Thank you so much. And um, thank you to uh, your listeners as well. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Behind the Bob. I'd love for you to subscribe on your favourite podcast platform and leave a rating or a review. You can also engage with me over on the socials. You can find me on Instagram and on Twitter at catspjs underscore UK. Catch up soon. Bye.